Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you have never taken the opportunity to read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you're in for a treat. Uh, I don't know if you came here this morning looking for a happy, uplifting sermon, uh, but you're not going to get it. Because uh, right out of the gate, in verse 2 of our passage this morning, King Solomon is going to tell us that our lives are totally without meaning and are completely worthless. <laughs> so uh, that definitely sets the, uh, the tone uh, for, for this morning and for the foreseeable future, probably about two to three months, I would assume, uh, of our time in Ecclesiastes. So doesn't that sound like a nice warm hug? Yeah, uh, yeah, it doesn't at all. Uh, and you might be thinking, why would we study a book with such a pessimistic outlook on life, right? Uh, especially at a time when the circumstances in our country are putting a heavy strain on the lives of, of uh, the American people and we're just dealing with, we look out into the world and we see a whole lot of chaos. Uh, wouldn't it be better if we were to focus uh, on a, a book full of hope right now? Well, I think this time in our lives is the perfect time to study a book like Ecclesiastes because if our hope comes from our circumstances, right? If our hope comes from everything going well for us in our lives, then we really don't have any hope at all. And so this makes uh, Ecclesiastes the perfect book to study right now because if we are putting our hope in politicians to save us from our issues, we have a worthless hope. If we're putting our hope in the stock market to turn around, we have a worthless hope. Uh, if we're waiting on gas prices to drop, right? If we're waiting on the job market to stabilize, or if we're waiting on our bank account to increase, or if we're just waiting for a relationship to help give us meaning, all of these things are placing our hope in the wrong things. All of this is worthless and meaningless. And the book of Ecclesiastes is going to tell us that if we chase after these things, it's essentially like chasing after the wind. We have no hope of catching it, and it's a waste of our lives. Right? So in order to find a hope that lasts through our study of Ecclesiastes, we're going to be looking at the antithesis of hope. All right? The exact opposite of where we can find our hope. And we're going to use that as a way to find our way to Jesus by reverse engineering Solomon's pursuits and seeing where he should have been placing his hope in the first place. But before we get into that, let's pray together because this is going to be... Uh, please pray for me as well. This is, this is fun. Lord, we are coming before you grateful uh, that you have hard words for us in the Scripture. Lord, that sometimes we need... Uh, to be shaken out of our apathy. Sometimes we need to be shaken out of our comfort uh, in order to see your beauty and your goodness and your provision for us. And we get a good glimpse of that in the book of Ecclesiastes. So as we open that this morning, I pray that you would be with us. You would open our eyes to see the truth. You would open our ears to hear the truth. And you would open our hearts to uh, desire to pursue after you with all that we have. Lord, it's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. Alrighty, so 
we're going to take this in chunks. All right, we're going to start off with verse one, then we're going to hit verse two, and then we're going to combine verse two and three, and then we're going to combine four through eleven. So we're going to start off slow, and it's going to speed up as we go along. Ecclesiastes one, and we're not going all the way to twelve, but twelve also tells us who we're being spoken to by in this book. Right, Ecclesiastes one one says the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. All right, so this word teacher could also be uh, put there as preacher as well. So that's the type of relationship that he is assuming with the people of Israel. And in verse 12, it says, I, the teacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, but he never says his name. So we have to use context clues to figure out who exactly wrote this book and who's speaking to us. Um, in verse 1 and in verse 12, he says he is the son of David, king over Israel in Jerusalem. And if you look through all the, the children of David who were uh, assumed the throne, Solomon is the only candidate of David's children to be able to claim this title as he was the only one of David's sons who ruled over a united Israel from Jerusalem. Right, so he's the only one. Everyone else, there was a divided kingdom. And some ruled from Judah and some ruled from Jerusalem. Well, he's the only one that had a combined kingdom and was the only one to rule that kingdom from Jerusalem. Uh, plus, if you look at some of the aspects of Solomon's life, we can see that some of the uh, experiences that he had in his life match up with the stuff that he's talking about in the book of Ecclesiastes. So when David died, he handed the kingdom, over, uh, kingdom of Israel over to his son Solomon, and then God comes to Solomon in a dream and tells him that anything he asks for, he can have. I mean, imagine that. Imagine having, you know, one free wish and you can get whatever you want. God presents this to Solomon. And Solomon, as he was coming into this experience as king, he was young, he was inexperienced. And so he asked God for wisdom in order to have the ability to rule the nation well and uphold justice. Now, how many of you would have asked for wisdom as opposed to all the money that you could possibly ever spend? Right? All the comfort that you could possibly ever want. He had the wisdom already to ask for more wisdom. Right? And God granted Solomon's request, and Solomon used this great wisdom to rule the, the kingdom. Right? Uh, and we see much of this wisdom. He wrote a lot of it down, and we don't have it all. Uh, but we have a good bit of it, so we, have, we see a lot of it in the book of Proverbs. We see uh, a lot of it in the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. Those two words, those mean the same thing. And also here in the book of Ecclesiastes. But the, the, the thing is, though, and what's very surprising if you think about it well, is that the wisest man in the ancient world, he wasn't completely without his faults. Right? He, he was still human. He was still prone to sin. And because of his nature, he became greedy, he became lustful, he became power-hungry, and he also became idolatrous. Right? He violated the kingly commands that we see in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. These commands clearly state that a king over Israel is not to gather for himself large amounts of money, and nor is he uh, supposed to acquire for himself uh, a large number of wives. Right? And if you know anything about Solomon, you know that he was one of the wealthiest people to ever live. 
Right? Some people say that all the money in the world that we have right now wouldn't amount to the, the riches that Solomon had, or at least until we started printing money. Right? Before that, though, Solomon was probably the richest person to ever live. And uh, if you look in 1 Kings 11, 1 to 8, uh, we see that he had over 700 wives and over 300 concubines. Now, see, we're, we're lacking in wisdom somewhere because, like, I don't know where you think it's a good idea to add that many women to your life and try to keep them all happy, uh, but we, they were lacking somewhere. Uh, and the, one of the other issues that he had because of all these women is that many of them were from other nations. Right? And because they were from other nations, they worshipped other gods. And so all of these foreign women would, would ask Solomon to, to present offerings to these gods that they worshipped. And so it began to pull his heart away from Yahweh to these false gods. Right? And it says throughout, throughout Ecclesiastes and through the stories in the Old Testament, it says that Solomon did not deny himself anything that he wanted. Right? And as a result... He completely ruined his kingdom. As a result, God told Solomon that following his death, his kingdom would be divided during his son's reign. And that's where we see the northern and the southern kingdom of, of Israel come about. One rules from Judah, the other rules from Jerusalem. Right? And tradition says that Ecclesiastes is uh, an older version of Solomon who has contemplated his mistakes and he is sharing what he has learned in his old age. So he's taken in all this stuff. He made a lot of foolish mistakes in his youth. And tradition says that Ecclesiastes is his way of telling us, hey, look at what I have done. It was messed up. Don't go this way. Now, we have no way to verify that. But it, if you listen to the tone of the book, it does seem like we have uh, there's a contrite heart that is coming back to give us all of this wisdom from his mistakes. And so Solomon appears to have gone through all that throughout the majority of his life, and he comes to the end of it, and he realizes how futile it all was. Like not denying himself, you know, pursuing after pleasure, pursuing after wealth, uh, pursuing after prestige. Uh, at the end of the book, Solomon is going to warn his son not to follow in his footsteps. So when we get there in Ecclesiastes 12, 12 to 14, Solomon will say this, But beyond these, my son, be warned, there is no end to the making of many books, and such study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this, Fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. So the last thing that he talks to his son about is abstaining from all the stuff that he has pursued. What do you need in this life? You need to fear God. You need to keep his commands because God is going to bring to judgment every single act that we ever go through in our whole lives. All the other stuff is absolutely worthless. And so it appears that at the end of living a predominantly hedonistic lifestyle for most of his life, Solomon finally concludes that the pursuit of riches, pursuit of women, prestige, all of this ends up being completely worthless. And so we find here that this will bring eternal value to our lives if we will remember this and if we will remember that the only thing that transfers from this life to the next life is our fear of God and our willingness to obey his commands. 
Right, so after introducing himself in verse 1, Solomon then goes on in verses 2 and 3, and he tells us the entire premise of the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you need a summary statement of Ecclesiastes, verses 2 and 3 has it. It says there, absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? I mean, so the meaning here is absolutely clear. Life is meaningless. But there's no point to it. And as I was studying this week, I found this to be interesting. Uh, in Hebrew, the word for vapor or breath is havel, H-E-V-E-L. And you can associate words to havel like meaningless, vanity, nothingness, absurd. All of that can sort of be tied into the word havel. And, and what Solomon is saying here is that life is havel of havel, which is the Hebrew superlative form. Now, what does any of that mean? I honestly don't know. Right? I, I don't know Hebrew, I don't know Greek, um, and I don't normally point this stuff out because most of the time when we talk about this, it has no value to what we're trying to learn. But uh, every now and then, there comes a, I come across something in the commentaries that I find very interesting, and I thought that might, you might find this interesting as well. So making his point this way, saying that there is uh, nothing more meaningless than human life, it, he's saying it in the same way as we might say the Holy of Holies. So Havel of Havel is like saying the Holy of Holies. right? So there is no other place on the planet that is more holy than the Holy of Holies. right? Also, when you see Song of Songs right, or the Song of Solomon, when it says the Song of Songs, this is the greatest song that Solomon ever wrote. And so when he says Havel of Havel, in verse 2, it's to say that there is nothing more empty in the entire world than human existence because it is frail and it is fleeting. Didn't expect to hear that when you came in this morning, did you? But one thing that we need to consider in this meaningless existence of ours is the parameters for which that he has set for that existence. Right? He asks in verse 3, what does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? And if you underline anything, just be mindful of underlining something like that. Circle that. Make a, a, a note of that in your notes. Uh, the term under the sun is going to be an important repetition, repetitious theme throughout this entire book. Right, we're going to see it mentioned roughly 30 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And it clues us in on Solomon's perspective for this meaningless life. Right? His whole focus is on everything that is under the sun. Right? Meaning that all that Solomon is focused on comes from an earthly perspective. Right? He has surveyed and experienced all that this world has to offer and he has found it lacking. Right? And if this world, if this life is all that there is, then everything is meaningless. Everything. There's no meaning to this life if there's nothing after it, if there's nothing beyond it. Right? And so, it, honestly, if you were to read this book apart from the rest of the Bible, I don't think anyone would disagree with him. Right? If this were the only context that we have for what Solomon is teaching us here, I don't think anyone would, have, would disagree at all. Um, but by God's grace, we do have the rest of Scripture. 
By God's grace, we have a story that tells us that this life isn't all that there is. That there is one that is out there that is beyond the sun, that created the sun. And we should be living for him. That's why we don't live for this life. Because Solomon's not wrong. If we are living for this life, then life is meaningless. But for a while, Solomon did live as though this life was all there is. He found it lacking. Right? This is what he's going to tell us throughout the rest of this book. He begins that process with a poem that starts in chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. Follow along with me as I read that. It says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting. It hurries back to the place where it rises. Gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can anyone say about anything? Look at this. This is new. It has already existed in the ages before. There is no resemblance, no, no remembrance of those who came before and of those who will come after. There will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. And so in the first half of this poem, Solomon points out repetitive cycles in nature to prove the point that nothing is gained from all of our work here on earth. In verse 4, he points to the cycle of generations that occur one after another, and yet, for the most part, the earth remains unchanged. Right? Things keep going the same way that they've been going for thousands of years, and they will continue going for thousands of years, barring the return of Christ. Generation after generation, things just keep going on and on and on. Right? In verse 5, Solomon compares the sun to this exhausted track runner who runs lap after lap but always ends up right back where he started. There's no progress being made. Verse 6, the wind is pointed out to gust in circles. It goes, north, then, uh, it goes south, then north, and then it turns and it turns, but it always returns back to where it began. In verse 7, Solomon points to the streams that flow into the sea. The streams keep flowing, uh, because of the water cycle, but the sea is never filled. So the water keeps flowing and flowing, and then it goes back up into the sky, and then it rains, and then it comes back down, and it goes back up into the sky, and it rains, and it comes back down. So we constantly see this circular existence for nature. Nothing changes. And these points, after these points, Solomon moves on to human elements to point out how meaningless life is. In verse 8, he says, the eye is not satisfied by seeing. The ear is not filled with hearing. So think about no matter how much we consume, it's never enough. Right? No matter how much we bring into our life, there's always this sense of discontentment that never settles us down. Right? If we just constantly saw our bank account going up and up and up and up. right? Norman Rockefeller once said, how much is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Right? We always want a little bit more. When we have praises that come into our ears, right? You did great today. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Is that enough? No. I want you to tell me again tomorrow. Tell me how good I am. Tell me that you affirm me. Tell me that you love me. 
constantly give me more and more and more. Right? We never have this sense of enough is enough. This human body is constantly discontent because our nature is broken. Right? After that, he talks about in verses 9 and 10, he says there's nothing new under the sun. And so he's saying life is meaningless because everything that is here now has been in the past and everything that is here now will be here in the future. And uh, the first thing that I thought about was, well, not quite. I mean, we've got a lot of new stuff, right? Think about technology. Well, if you think really closely about technology, uh, can you really say that there is anything new, right? It's just newer ways of doing things, but there's nothing new under the sun. So if you think about, think about transportation, for example, right? So you start off, you're walking, maybe riding an animal. All right, so we think that's not the most efficient way to do this, and so we build a car. And we think, okay, well that's, that's a lot faster, but it's not new, it's just going faster. All right, let's go even faster, let's get a plane and we'll go further. It's still not new, it's still transportation. We're still just going from one place to another, we're just doing it quicker now, right? Think about, let's project this into Star Trek time and think about teleportation. It's, I mean, that would be awesome, I hate to drive but still not new, right? It's just another way to get from one place to the other. We're still dealing with transportation. Think about communication, right? We communicate by speaking, right? That doesn't go very far, right? If we don't have projection, you're not gonna get too far. So what do we do after that? Well, let's start with smoke signals, right? That cloud means this, this cloud means that. If it goes up really fast, it means I'm on fire, please help, right? So we start with smoke signals, then we go to the telegraph. Right after that, the telephone. We can throw in there letters, email, social media. Right, we see all this. It's just means of communication. It's not new. It's just a newer way to do the thing that was there before. Right. So there's nothing new under the sun, and there never will be anything new under the sun. And because of that, Solomon says life is meaningless. Right. And lastly. Solomon points out that most of us will not be remembered when we are gone. So if you needed something real cheerful uh, to walk out of here with today, just remember that after you die, no one will know who you are. Right? Says, you know, we, we can think about this, and some people are well remembered. Yes, I mean, we can think about uh, big names from, from history. We can think about you know, big names from all over the world that people will remember. But if you think about how many billions of people exist in the world, right, and then you think about how many of them that you actually know or have heard of, I mean, it, it, it becomes very daunting. Like, do you know who your great, great, great grandfather was? Now, some of you might. Some of you may be historians. You may have that written down in your Bible. You got the family tree. But I, I would dare to say that most of us can't even name our own great-great-great-grandfather, right? And so as you being someone's great-great-great-grandfather, someone's great-great-great-grandmother, right? I would dare to say that in a few generations, most of us will not be remembered. And Solomon looks at that and he goes, vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. It's futile. Like all the work that I have put in to try to make a name for myself, it may not even be remembered. And if it's not going to be remembered, then it's meaningless. There's no point to life. All right, so 
what do we do with this cheerful little message today? Right, Solomon's message in Ecclesiastes is just as relevant today as it was the day he wrote it. Right? People think to themselves all the time, if I could just have a little bit more, a little bit more of something, if I could have just a little bit more money, I would finally be happy. I would finally find joy in my life. My life would have meaning because I could do something with that money that would be meaningful to myself and to some other, some, someone else. If I could simply have a little more pleasure in my life, right? I might pursue that in relationships. I might pursue that in toys, right? Somebody has once said, whoever dies with the most toys wins, right? The most cars, the most boats, the most houses, most four-wheelers, right? Most game systems, whatever your thing is, if you can just have a little bit more of that, that next thing would finally give you a little bit of peace, a little bit of joy. And for a little while, it does, right? Like everybody loves getting the new thing, right? The new phone, the new car for a little while until, you know, you start realizing what those car payments are going to be. You start realizing that, oh, I just dropped my phone in the toilet, right? Things start degrading almost immediately after we get them. The new wears off and then we're simply looking for the next thing, right? What about more success? If I could just climb this ladder a little bit higher, if the, if the, boss would just acknowledge me that I have done a good job, that I'm valuable to this company, I would finally feel a little bit of joy. But then let's say that you do, you climb up to the very top of the ladder, you built a Fortune 500 company, you are the CEO of that, and then after you die, it all falls apart. Your life was meaningless, there was nothing of meaning about that. If you would do these things, if you would find yourself really happy, in, in those moments. Solomon had all of that. And yet, at the end of his life, he comes to the conclusion that it's all meaningless. And so my question for you today is where are you looking for your meaning? Right? Are you pursuing after these things that will eventually end up showing that your life was futile? that your life was meaningless. Because there is only one thing in this life that will transfer into the next life, and that is the work that we do for the kingdom of God. That is the work that we do to glorify God, to grow in our relationship with Him, and then to pour out from that onto other people what we have learned and serve people well through that. Right? We're, we're not going to be... God's not up there taking notes saying, well, got that house, that's good. All right, we've got this car, that's good. Got this job, that's really good. And so we'll give Chris all of these things. The only thing that we see that gathers any kind of wealth in the kingdom of God is kingdom work. Is us pursuing after the, those that are lost and dying and going to hell. Pursuing after the opportunity to serve one another. Right? These are the only things that are going to garner any kind of treasure in heaven. And it's the only thing that's going to be meaningful in heaven. We're not going to get up there and have someone come up and say, Thank you so much for buying that new car. Thank you so much for taking that new job or buying that new house. 
They're not going to come up and say, thank you so much for giving all of that away. Right? Because let's say you accumulate all of that for yourself and then you realize, hey, this is worthless and you just give it all away. Still yet, if you are not doing this to glorify God, it's completely worthless. So how's your heart this morning? What do you value above all else? What are you pursuing after to give your life meaning? If it's not Christ, then it's futility. Vanity of vanities. It's all meaningless. It's all worthless. So as we go out of here today, I want us to do some heart work to see what is it that I am pursuing to find meaning in my life. Let's pray together. Father, it is a blessing for you to weigh heavily on us from time to time so that we understand what we need to be focusing on in our life. And my guess is that there are many of us here today who have gotten distracted by the things of this world. We've gotten distracted by our needs, but more importantly, our wants. We've gotten distracted by thinking about how other people perceive us. We've gotten distracted by trying to keep up with the Joneses and buying things that we don't need to impress people that we don't like. Lord, help us to see that, though. The way that the world creeps into our minds and our hearts is deceptive. And we're not always capable of understanding that without your help. And so I beg you today, Lord, to open our eyes to the truth. Help us to see where we have placed value in our life and where we are pouring ourselves out. And help us to see that if it's not for your kingdom, in your name, for your glory, it is meaningless. I ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.